Blythe Terrell, your host of Sparks 538 Science Podcast. Last episode, you heard the science team talking about The Unpersuadables by Will Storr. And this week, we have senior science writer Maggie Kurth-Baker interviewing Storr himself. Take a listen. So I want to um, I, I want to start off a little bit with a kind of a odd question that I noticed that, like many books, your book has a different title in the UK than it does in the US, that it's the heretics in the UK and the unpersuadables in the US. And I'm curious if you see a difference between heretics and unpersuadables. You know, is there... Do those different titles mean something a little different? No, I'm afraid it's much more boring. It's the publisher was worried because, well, I mean, I, I can't, I, I know, I, I, I can't have a view on this. I don't have a view on this. But, the, but, but the, the American publishers thought that the word heretics in the states has a very strong religious connotation, so they were worried that the, it would look like a book about religion. Whereas over in the UK, heretics is, 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 it has a, has much more of a general meaning, so it wasn't seen to be a problem. So that's the only reason. So it w- wasn't even my decision. It was just like we don't want to call it the heretics. I thought it was interesting that you kind of moved this story into place narratively by kind of talking about your own personal struggles with believing things that weren't true. Um, And in your case, this had to do with a relationship that you had with a woman and that you became very jealous and you had a lot of trouble understanding what were real threats and what weren't and that you know this negatively affected your personal life and negatively affected the way that you treated her and I thought that this was really interesting because I don't think it necessarily would have occurred to me to think about a personal relationship you know I kind of went nuts moment and connect that to things like creationism and I'm really curious about how you made that connection for yourself what what stood out that made those two things feel like the same thing to you yeah um that's a great question um well the reason i wrote about that in the book is because you know when i was in my 20s i had a terrible time in my in this personal relationship that i write about in the book and um and it was this great struggle i had that i felt kind of envious um towards my um partner at the time and i was paranoid about what she was up to and it was this almost madness it, it i had this very frightening uh, sense that i wasn't in control of my own thoughts that I, I wanted to be this person and believe this set of things and you know in moments of clarity i knew this set of things was true but in my kind of darkest moments uh, you know i i, I couldn't control uh, my own thoughts, you know, to the extent where I was worried that I was going mad, you know, like, I, th- you know, what, is there something really badly wrong with me? Um, so it was a very dark uh, period in my life. And um, uh, and what I took from that was just this, it kind of gives you this very powerful sense that you are not in control of your own thoughts. You are not in control of your own beliefs. You, you, you The things that we believe are almost, you know, very powerfully uh, are kind of thrust upon us in a way. Our brain kind of decides what we believe in a way. And as much as we'd like to control um, uh, our thoughts, uh, beliefs and emotions, actually, when it comes down to it, we can't. So that that's, and I, and I think that's what um, kind of mot- has motivated my interest professionally in people that uh, society would kind of class as mad or crazy, uh, I, I, that, I, I, I guess it gave me, a, in, in a way, a kind of empathy with those people. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that, you know, we can't control our own thoughts? Um, in the book, it feels like there's some tension over that idea because you talk about the evidence that sort of suggests that, you know, maybe we don't have the free will that we think we do, but also, you know, people change their minds. I mean, one of, you know, coming from my own personal bias, my I grew up very religiously conservative, and I went to fundamentalist Baptist high school. You know, I grew up thinking evolution was false and kind of a plot to, you know, trick people away from Jesus. But that's something I changed my mind on. And if people can change their minds, how does that fit in with the evidence that suggests that we maybe don't have free will? 
So, so I think that the free will um, argument is kind of based on this idea of confabulation, which is this uh, concept that um, uh, Michael Gazaniga and uh, Roger Sperry I did lots of very uh, interesting experiments um, on a, a few decades ago. And essentially what they found is that uh, we... Uh, we kind of all have this what they call it they call it a left brain interpreter that kind of voice in our heads that, that narrativizes is everything that we're kind of experiencing and all the things that we're going through and that voice in our heads doesn't actually have direct access to the to the kind of the rest of our brain so it kind of gives us make sense explanations as to kind of what we're thinking how we're feeling um and those may be true but they also might not be true we've got kind of no way of telling what we're doing as we're going through um our lives kind of confabulating uh, and that kind of confabulation gives us a sense of control it gives us a sense that we have free will that we are the choosers of our beliefs and our behavior uh, 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 and what they say uh, and what, what lots of people believe is that actually we don't uh, uh, that we are uh, kind of behaving almost automatically uh, and it's just that left brain is narrating our behavior and you know there's a variety of different kind of beliefs on the spectrum some people believe we don't have any free will at all and we are essentially zombies other people believe that we have a, a kind of a conditional version of free will but surprisingly few uh, academics uh, uh, that i could find believe we have that kind of the, the version of free will that we believe that we have yeah yeah i mean it, one of the things i sort of came away from the book was this with the idea that like you know our minds can change but maybe the kinds of mind changes that we have we're predisposed to because of the way that our brains work yeah yeah exactly i mean actually because this is one of the when i after i'd written the book this was the the, the, the question that came up a lot i did do some work after the book because uh, i became interested in this you know what happens when people change their minds and i found a really interesting guy um, whose name uh, escapes me at the moment unfortunately but he uh he was a um 9-11 truther uh, and he was—he became quite a well-known internet personality, uh, and he he changed his mind when sort of confronted with the evidence. He actually went on a BBC documentary series, and they took him to meet all these experts that told him why 9/11 wasn't an inside job, and he changed his mind. And and, um, and uh, when I was sort of dug back into his past, it was very interesting to to, to, to hear his kind of background. And and he he was brought up. Uh, his parents were uh, in the oil business, and he was brought up as a, a, a part of the deal. If you went to went to live in the Middle East, you, you got uh, your kids went to a sort of very posh school, and he went to this sort of very posh school. But he was kind of bullied by these um, uh, kids that that were kind of in this posh school. So he had all these narratives in his head about. Um, um, uh, you know, he he, he, he had all these sort of very powerful stories sort of throffing around in his head about um you know the, the, the kind of these bully boys and how they can um uh, knock you down and control your life and at the same time he also had some very powerful experiences of um islamism he he, he told me some stories about how uh, one time he was holding hands with his girlfriend in a shopping mall and i think it was in saudi arabia and the religious police took them took them to one side and they called his girlfriend a whore and all these horrific things and uh, he he witnessed a kind of islamist bombing so so so, the, so there were all these it, it seemed to me there were all these sort of very interesting kind of narratives going around in his head that that that, that the uh, one stage the 9-11 truth thing made sense of these narratives um uh, 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 and then he kind of he was able to kind of flip because then he had he also had this experience of uh, you know uh, of how awful um islamism and how dangerous it could be and he kind of was able to kind of flip those two things um f from one to the other it, it, it felt like he had uh, uh he, the life that he had led up to that point uh, had enabled him to be able to accept both of those narratives and, and it was an unusual life and he was an unusual um uh, kind of person to be able to kind of flip like that and i don't think that most people have had those unusual experiences that enable them to see both sides in that way i i think that's interesting about the idea because one of the things i sort of came away from the book with was this idea that like if you actually want to change someone's mind that you might have a better time of it if what you're doing is giving them a way to fit your idea into their pre-existing narratives rather than trying to just throw a bunch of evidence at them. And it kind of sounds like that's sort of what happened with this guy, that somehow the BBC gave him a way to keep the narratives that he had established, but maybe change what the narrative meant. 
That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And yeah, yeah, he had these experiences. Yeah, these stories. He'd lived these stories already. I mean, one of the ways that I look at the idea of sort of changing people's minds is that I think, obviously, you know, in the book, one of the areas I explore quite a lot is how we live our lives in this narrative mode that we are you know if we're happy and healthy and not depressed we tend to live our lives as if we're David fighting Goliath you know we are trying to make our world and the world of our loved ones a better place and we're struggling against great odds and we have heroes and villains and it's that narrative that 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 gets us wrong it's 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 those narratives that kind of uh, you know generate these mistakes that we make uh, intellectually and 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 one of the ways uh, and, and that kind of leads you to believe i think what leads me to believe that one of the ways we we, we should work we, we can change people's minds is by as you say telling stories which kind of fit with with their story so if somebody's a traditionally right-wing person who might uh instinctively uh, and emotionally feel sort of negative feelings towards immigrants uh people fleeing from syria for example you know one way to um uh reach out to them and connect with them might be to actually tell them the story about this immigrant being just a hard-working uh, you know, a father being a hard-working family man who's risking it all for, to, for his family, you know, coming to make a better life, who wants, who wants to work hard in this new place. I mean, that's a, that's a story about immigration that we don't hear very much. And it's actually a true story. I mean, <laughs> that's, a, that's a story of, you know, a huge, uh, a significant proportion of immigrants. They just want, they, they are risking everything to make their lives of their families better and that you know i think it's if we wanted to sort of change the minds of people for me it's 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 working out what story to tell about the situation that is going to connect with them that's going to kind of fit in with their view of the world and their story of the world this episode is brought to you by lyft you know lyft right it's the app that gets you a ride in minutes on demand 24 7 for less than the cost of a cab If you've tried Lyft, you know how easy it is. With Lyft, you just download the app, request a driver, and they show up in three and a half minutes on average. That's really, really fast. Every Lyft driver is fully vetted through their 10-point safety standard, including criminal and DMV background checks. You know you'll get around quickly and safely. With Lyft, you can tip in the app, which obviously leads to happier drivers. Nine out of ten Lyft rides get a perfect five-star rating from the passenger. That's a lot of happy customers. Thanks to Lyft, you've got an easy way to avoid drunk driving, you never have to bum a ride, and you never have to worry about parking. Right now, Lyft is offering a special deal to our listeners. Get three free rides up to $10 each. That's up to $30 value when you enter the promo code POINT. Download the Lyft app and enter the promo code POINT. So you wrote this book, you know, a couple of years ago. This it came out in the UK in 2013 and in the US in 2014. Um, we're reading it because, you know, it's sort of maybe been a little relevant this year uh, than maybe even it was when it came out. And I'm curious about what you've been thinking as you watched, you know, the stuff with Brexit in the UK, the stuff with our presidential election here. You know, there's so been so much of people trying to convince each other of facts. There's been so little trust. There's been so much obvious cognitive bias on display. And as someone who is immersed in research on these topics at one point, I'm I'm curious about what you've been paying attention to in politics and why it matters. You know, has there been any particular moments in the past year that stood out to you <laughs> yeah yeah well I, th- I think the first thing to, to mention is that is is that the book is uh, has changed the way that i think and behave very much I, i'm much less yeah i'm much yeah I, I i find it hard to trust my own political opinions uh, very much and one of the one of the, uh, probably the main thing that stuck with me is something that i think it was jonathan hate that said was that if you want to find rampant irrationality you look for the things that people make sacred and i think for me you can spot the things that people make sacred because they're the things that people get really emotional about and there was a time when i used to be on twitter and i used to get really angry about something i used to go on twitter and broadcast to the world my you know crucially important belief which of course was going to have no impact whatsoever on anyone uh now i don't do that anymore when i feel like i'm getting very angry i i i, I, I that's when i realize that i'm in in a place where i can't really trust my own thoughts and feelings um on that and that's kind of a weird place to be because you you know uh, uh, so, 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 so there has been a certain amount of that uh but but you also see I, I think especially with the trump well i think the trump and the brexit thing they, they, they have a lot in common and I, I and what was interesting to me was that especially after the trump um uh election win was that there was an argument going on between people that said did the 
did, did the people vote for Trump who uh, didn't before? Was it because they was it they were voting for economic reasons, or was it because they're racists and sexists? And um, for me, again, it's all about. Um, the the story they're telling of the world you know they you know some for, for a lot of these people especially the white uh, working class they have seen a decline in their quality of life since the 80s since the start of neoliberalism um and you know the, the, how do we live our lives our brains tell tell stories of the world cause they, 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 our brains look out into the world and spot causes and effects and they make and they tell stories about those causes and effects and often those stories are wrong and i think for a lot of people you know it's true that their quality of life has gone down since the 1980s it's true uh, that, that lots of them have lost their jobs and what are they doing they're going through their lives and they're seeing there's lots of immigrants in town now and you know in, in the uk you might get somebody who i'm working hard to pay my taxes and i took my and my daughter had an accident we went to a hospital and there was this family in the emergency room who didn't even speak english and and, and they'll see these changes and, and, and their brains would automatically tell that cause and effect story and blame the immigrants for those changes. Uh, so, 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 so and, and they get resentful. They think, well, you know, why should I pay my taxes and these people and why are they here? And so I think when you when when you look at the issue from the perspective of kind of what stories are people telling about their world, uh, their worlds, you see how these two things are combined. It is economic. They do have real reason to be uh, upset. These people is, you know, inequality has risen uh, uh, since the 80s. Their quality of life has gone down, especially for uh, those without a college degree. Uh, but, 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 but they are making a mistake about cause and effect. They're not thinking about, you know, government regulations and globalization and all these other things. They're thinking about, you know, the, the the woman down the road who's on food stamps and shops in Macy's and she's addicted to painkillers and how is that fair? Or they're, they're, they're complaining about the, you know, the, the uh, immig immigrants that they saw in the hospital. I mean, a big part of the Brexit campaign was with these scare posters that they, they put up everywhere saying that Turkey's about to join the EU and millions of, you know, Turkish people are going to be flooding. The implication was flooding Britain. I mean, so they're appealing to our, to people's very worst tribal instincts. But underneath all that, there has been a you know rise in inequality. You know the global financial crisis has hit these people really hard. So if you, as I say, if you if you if you look at the situation from the perspective of what stories people are telling about themselves about the world, you see how it's a, it is a bit about race and race racism and sexism and tribalism but it's also about the economy too it starts off with they have a legitimate complaint to make about the world but from my perspective um they're making a mistake about the, the story that they're telling about why why their lives have got worse is wrong that's the mistake and of course they're being encouraged by right-wing media they're, they're being encouraged by right-wing um uh messaging they're being encouraged to believe it's to do with the government and it's to do with regulations or, or whatever they're being told i'm also curious about what your take is on this idea of living in a post-fact world that you know as as a phrase that has come up a few times here in the u.s um you know because a, a lot of what you're talking about is that we've always sort of lived in a post-fact world yeah, that has been a surprise to me. Like, I, I was surprised that people were saying, oh, well, suddenly we're in this post-fact world. It, that's how it seems to me. We, we've been, I mean, I mean, I'm 14 at two now. I feel like I've always been living in a post-fact world, certainly uh, over here. Um, you know, uh, so, so I, I, and I think that, that that's the, the evidence that we see from, I think, in, in the book I quote um, Drew Weston, who's, who's the great political scientist who says, and he, he was writing... Uh, I mean, it must have been at least seven or eight years ago now. And he says in the book, you know, time after time, study after study shows that it's the it's the parties who it's not the parties with the best data and the best facts that win elections. It's parties that tell tell the right emotional stories that win elections. And and he was writing that before this kind of post fact world, uh, post fact kind of era <laughs> is supposed to have dawned. I think it's always been true. And um, because one of the things like we that we talked about, we had our conversation yesterday uh, amongst ourselves as the science staff and like one of the things that we kind of got to talking about was okay well there's definitely a narrative that science is under attack and that facts are under attack in a way that they've never been before but we don't actually know that we've ever seen evidence that that's true and you know one of the things that I wondered was why we have that perception and whether that perception is accurate like do you do you actually think science is more under attack today than it was 30 or 40 years ago you know is 
what do you what do you think about that? No, I, 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 I don't think that's true. I think it's always been the case that you know, you know we, we are we're always living in that narrative mode. And if we are, I mean, there's a, there's a guy over in the UK called Michael Gove, who's a very senior politician, who says something very silly dur- during the Brexit um, campaigning. He was pro Brexit. He wants us to leave the European Union. And he said he said he said um, I think people are just fed up with experts, is what he said. And he's never he's never quite lived it down. And he's a very bright guy, Michael Gove. He's not somebody that I would agree with on many things, but he's a, he's an intelligent guy. And um, uh, but, but I think it's always been the case that, 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 that you know, we have our narrative. We, ha- we, we have our story of the world with its heroes and villains. And if, uh, you know, a so-called expert comes along with, with so-called evidence that, that our narrative is wrong, we are just going to find a way of discrediting them. We're going to find a way of allowing ourselves to believe that that expert is wrong because otherwise our whole especially when it's a real core belief you know our whole sense of identity becomes shaky that's kind of what we have to do you know our brain is there not to uh, to pass data Uh, it's to make ourselves feel good it's to get us through life feeling happy and uh, keeping our self-esteem kind of bubbling along on high that's what the self is there to do that's what our that's what it's there for so so it's always going to be the case that we will dismiss experts um, uh, who who uh, uh, who who don't kind of concord with our narrative. I mean, I mean, you know, we, we're both science journalists, Maggie. And I'm sure you've been in the situation that I've been in, where we just profoundly disagree with an expert who's saying a certain thing. But that, but also that expert's been studying the subject all their lives, and we've been cover- we've been writing about the story for maybe a couple of weeks. But you still find yourself so there's a you think, well, I'm disagreeing with this person who has been studying, <laughs> who knows this intimately. Uh, but but so so, so, so we all we, we we've all had an experience of di- of dismissing experts. We've all had an experience of of, of, of reading the work of a professor who, uh, by any by any judgment, knows way more about the subject than we do. But we still, uh, you know. We, we 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 still feel able to dismiss them, and we have to be. Otherwise, what do we do? We, we you know we we we, ha- we 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 have to be able to think like that. Otherwise, we just end up sort of deferring to everybody who has been who who, who can quote more studies than we do, and and, and that wouldn't be good. I, one of the things that I sort of came away related to that, wondering about, is you know what it means to be a non-scientist, or you know even a scientist when the issue at question isn't what you study. Because if actually knowing something requires you effectively doing the research yourself, and if you're not doing that, you have to trust someone else and effectively create this faith narrative, you know, what do we do? Because we can't all sit down and research every question individually all the time. You know, at a fundamental level, society is about sort of distribution of labor and we've decided that there are these people that study things for us it's a real worry and and i I, and it's becoming more and more of a worry uh, all the time for me as as somebody who writes about science especially social psychology because there's a huge amount of kind of churn going on at the moment you know like especially i mean i've just finished my next book (laughs) uh, which actually does look at uh, you know does look at trump and brexit and 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 how all that happened as well um but but um But but you see, you know, almost every week, this 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 thing that um, that, that we were told, you know, up until last week was this very uh, well established principle of psychology is now <laughs> not replicating and it's being thrown out of the window. So what do you do, especially if you're writing books, which the lead time is, you know, a, a year or more, and uh, it's, so, so it's very difficult. And as, as you say, there has to be a division of labour as, as a science journalist. We have to have some faith in these in in peer review in in that if if this study is being uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal like Science or Nature, that it has worth. But but now it, it, it's becoming apparent that there's a there there seem to be huge problems in the system, and that and that of course creates problems for the science journalist because we might write something one week, only for a week later for it to be completely debunked. How do you, as a journalist, now, you know, how do you write when you're not writing specifically about in these a scientific study being overturned or not, or being replicated or not? but you have to rely on it has it changed has this book changed like how you talk about the findings um yeah i mean i was always i mean i I, I, i'm I'm always very careful to 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 i mean to 
word it correctly. So I think this study suggests rather than this study has proved. And I think that's going to, you know, you, you, I think that's, that's always really important. I think it's always really important to, just to ask around as well. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, to, to, to see if there is any sort of kind of criticism of the work. But uh, as I said, I think it's especially um, uh, difficult um, when it comes to writing books because, you know, you write a book and it, it'll take them a year to publish it and then, you know, as we're talking now, four years later, you're being interviewed about it and it might turn out that there's some, some you know, some, some, some real uh, pillars of the of the book's argument have shown to be not true. But I also think that journalists um, do have a problem. I call it, kind of call it a scepticism bias where I think that w- I've noticed that when there's been a big... Uh, you know, a big kind of flashy finding in the, in the, especially in the social sciences, and, uh, and it gets a lot of um, attention. Somebody else can come along and say, ah, oh, with, with a study that apparently kind of debunks that. And as journalists, I think because we like to think of ourselves as very skeptical, and, and we know we, we won't be fooled, um, uh, we, we immediately and uncritically tend to accept that that that's, that that critical kind of paper as the truth. And I do I, I do notice a lot of that with science writers uh, uh, that. Um, that if one paper comes along uh, that doesn't replicate a certain finding, then the, the, the journalist will accept that as it's, it's been disproved. <laughs> you know, uh, this thing that everybody believed is not true at all. And actually, that's not really fair. In my experience, when you go back to the original scientist and say, well, you told me this, but there's this, now this paper that says this, more often than not, they've got a really good explanation. They will say, well, yeah, well, that's because they've not accounted for this. Or, so so I, I do think the media has this, has this sort of great scepticism bias where as soon as there's scepticism about a well-founded thing, we would immediately and uncritically go, yeah, yeah, it's rubbish. It's been rubbish all along. And I think you've got to be, you've got to be much more careful of that. I think, I think you know, attempts at debunking should be treated just as sceptically as, as big claims. I think I remember that in the... That big paper that came out in 2015 about uh, replication problems in psychology, there was a paper that came out in 2016 debunking that paper. (laughs) And uh, and if I remember correctly, one of the things in there was that some of the attempts at replication, like there was, I think, a study about um, racism among young people. And one of the, the original study had been done at a university in the United States, and the attempt at replication had been done at a university in Denmark. And lo and behold got totally different results which <laughs> yeah. yeah yes exactly yeah yeah that's it and uh, uh, so, so you always have to kind of let everybody have their kind of say twice <laughs> so i always think you know always go back and say but they said this and i mean where that's touched upon in the unpersuadables is the chapter on people who hear voices and you know you, you, you most of the book is uh, well, a lot of the book is made up of people who we would mo- most of us would think of have, have got very far out beliefs about kind of UFOs or creationism or whatnot. Um, but but there's there's the chapter on you know people who hear voices and whether schizophrenia is a real thing or not, and and it ends up with two very well credentialed, uh, very respectable scientists just sort of you know insulting each other <laughs> in quite a childish way and you know waving their meta analyses at each other, and that's where you end up. And of course, you need know, to work the division of labour. It, it gets to a point where the you know, I always think as a journalist, especially as a science journalist, our, our knowledge is broad, but it's shallow. And when, it, and when it gets down into the nitty gritty of statistical analysis, it gets to a point where we don't actually, we can't follow it. And we have to rely on that division of labour. The people that do understand this very advanced um, uh, statistical analysis, they have to tell us. And then what you, what you end up with is that you'll be just being told completely different things by different scientists. And then you just have to end up going, well, I'm just going to you know respectfully um uh, represent both their views and, and uh, you have to kind of leave it at that but it's but, it, but it's very difficult i was doing some reporting recently on conflicts of interest and so i was really struck by this quote from the book about you know i know that i'm not right about everything and yet i'm simultaneously convinced that i am and there's which was interesting to me because there's all of these studies that actually demonstrate that in action. You know, there's a there's a 2001 study that found 61% of doctors surveyed thought pharmaceutical industry promotions didn't affect their prescribing, but when they were asked about their peers, only 16% believed that other doctors would be unaffected. Amazing. <laughs> um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it, it was such a great demonstration of that particular kind of cognitive bias. And it's also, I mean, I think it's also sort of apparent in 
what Trump says, which, I mean, his whole approach to the issue of conflicts of interest has really been, you know, I can have these connections, but it's not a problem because I can ignore them. But also Washington is this swamp full of bad politicians who can't be trusted, you know, and and I'm curious about how do we as people start to have a better accounting of our own biases? You know, can we ever step back and be like, oh, right, I maybe shouldn't take this sandwich from the pharmaceutical rep either? Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's beginning with that. That that well, first is that is that is that sense of humility, and that's that kind of thought experiment which kind of triggered the whole book off, really, because it was it's kind of obvious when you think about it but it's also it's not obvious it's that our bias we were all biased and prejudiced but our biases are invisible to us you can't see your own biases and the, and the way i thought about that as you say is i just think well like you know I, I know i can't be right about all my beliefs because if i was i would be like god you know our, our, our experience of being alive is that we feel like we're right and all the people around us even our friends well they're a bit wrong about that and they're a bit wrong about that and he's definitely way wrong about that we're the only ones that are right about everything but logically that can't be true because then we would be like god so then you start thinking, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, let me think about the things I really strongly believe, and you go through them, and I, I, I can't see anything that I'm wrong about. <laughs> so, so, so you're kind of you're kind of stuck. You're kind of stuck. You know, you're absolutely stuck in this. You cannot see your biases, and you cannot see your biases. You cannot see your prejudices. You feel that you're not biased. You feel that you're not prejudiced. You feel that you're being rational. So, and, and I think that's what what causes a lot of the um, a, a lot of the really unpleasant uh, kind of personal uh, fallings out that people have, especially on Twitter, is that is that because we we forget that other people can't see their biases either. So we think they're we often think that they are operating from a position of complete dishonesty and they're being just evil and they, they can't possibly think that because it's so obviously not true so that must mean that they're evil and they're out there to to, to spread to harm and it's not true they, they can't see that they're wrong either so, so so we're all we're all in the same kind of place really we're all arguing from a place where we feel as if we're completely right uh, but 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 we don't you know we, we it's, it's hard to tell for sure and i think that f- for me the, 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 what, what, how the journey has been is that as, as i said before when i feel myself getting very emotional about something that's when i realize you know you you're not thinking rationally and it really is it's the thing that we do our thinking with is becoming broken you know that that that's how i think of it when i become very emotional as i said before you know it was terrible at going jumping on twitter when i felt very angry about something and now i think that when you feel angry about something twitter is the last place you want to be because when you're feeling angry you are you, you are you cannot think rationally about that thing you, you you're in that place where you're you've gone you kind of you've gone tribal now and uh, and, and and so i think that's I think it starts with with admitting my biases and prejudices are invisible invisible to to me. I, I have to have the humility to understand that I that I that there's a very good chance that I'm wrong about some things that I'm absolutely convinced I'm right about. A and B. One of the warning signs is that high emotion. You know, when you feel that blood pumping and you feel the vein throbbing, that's when step back. <laughs> you know, let's not uh, you know broadcast this view to the world, perhaps, and let's not lose friends over this thing, perhaps. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting in your book was this idea that, or at least what I'm interpreting anyway from the book, was this idea that you can be factually correct and still be engaging in groupthink and bias, and. I, I'm curious about why that's a problem. You know, if you're right, does it actually matter that you're biased? I'm particularly thinking of sort of like how you were covering some of the skeptics, where, uh, yeah, the capitalist oh, yeah. skeptics. Yeah. You know, where, um, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah, okay, they are factually correct on some of these things, but there's also groupthink and bias. Yeah. And if you're right, if, if you as a person are right about the facts, why does it matter that you're biased? Well, I think there's two things there. The, the first thing is, I, I, I just, just to, you know, I wanted to, 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 to kind of um, uh, uh, kind of give the kind of the sceptical community and, you know, myself in the book as well, as much of a hard time as I did about the creationists and the UFO kind of <laughs> believers. Because uh, I, I thought it would be interesting to see, you know, can we, you know, can, can we see if there's kind of group thinking and bias in, the, in these groups and if there are you know it is it does demonstrate that, that none of us are immune to these things and i think i think i did that but but the other thing is is just some of the uh you know so, so, so some of the effects that can 
can come out of that. And there, there was one uh, woman who I, I write about in the book who had a very powerful experience. You know, bearing in mind again that you know the way that the kind of br- the, br- the way our brains build our model of the world is by observing instances of cause and effect and telling little stories about those those instances of cause and effect well that that that's how this thing happened and sometimes those stories of cause and effect are, are wrong and there was this one woman who who had um uh, a very advanced cancer and was basically told uh, that she wasn't going to live uh, and then she started taking homeopathy homeopathic pills <laughs> and almost immediately her cancer went into remission now uh, you know as uh, uh, as skeptical uh science embracing people we, we we could be fairly sure in, in that we say it was a coincidence that her cancer happened to go into remission as cancers sometimes do just at the around the same time she, she was taking homeopathic me- medication so but what i'm saying in the book is that you know so, so what she's done is she's gone oh my god it worked it worked I, you know i tried the conventional medication nothing worked it got worse and worse i took this pill and I, you know I'm, my life has been saved so now she, of course she gets evangelical she wants to help the rest of the world and and tell them that you know, homeopathy is amazing. Uh, and what, what I'm saying is, 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 like, don't give her a hard time. She, I mean, she went on the news and talked about this, and she, 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 she was given a really hard time online. She was abused. Uh, she would only agree to an interview on condition. I didn't print her uh, the town where she lived. You know, she, 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 she had a horrible experience, and, and I think that's the problem. So, yes, it's right that homeopathy, um, you, you know, doesn't cure cancer. <laughs> You know, and actually is against the law to, to, to claim that it does. Um, but, but at the same time, that groupthink, I don't think groupthink is ever good. I don't, I, and, I, you know, I don't think tribal thinking is ever good. And, and, and I think, you know, none, none of us are, are immune from that, really. I think that's the, you know, if there is such a thing as, as, as well, there isn't such a thing as an original sin. But, but you know, if you could say that the, the human animal has an original sin, it's in that tribal thinking. And I think that, 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 that tribalness that that, that, that that is kind of an essential part of being human is is the cause of so much misery i think we should we, we should try and lessen its effects kind of as and wherever possible this week's show is also brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. It's a brand new year and relationship goals might be at the top of your resolution list. So start the year off with a great gift from 1-800-Flowers.com. It might be the best decision you make all year. 1-800-Flowers has great deals on elegant and stunning bouquets. And right now, 1-800-Flowers has a vast selection of beautiful rose bouquets and arrangements. And the best part is they start at just twenty nine ninety nine. Roses from 1-800-Flowers are picked at their peak and shipped overnight to ensure freshness and the amazement of the person you give it to. Why wouldn't you want to give amazement? It's a great gift. Simply pick your delivery date and let 1-800-Flowers handle the rest. When it comes to surprising your special someone, don't settle for anything less than the Rose Authority. 1-800-Flowers.com. To get a beautiful and vibrant rose bouquet starting at just $29.99, go to 1-800-Flowers.com, click on the radio icon, and enter the code WTP. WTP for what's the point? 1-800-Flowers.com, enter the code WTP when you click on the radio icon. Don't delay, the offer ends soon. Okay, back to the show. One final question I wanted to ask you about is sort of where this stepping back when you're angry where the trying to be less tribal where that kind of breaks down um because you know great we can make this progress on changing people's minds or you know coming to better consensus by fitting what you want to convince someone of into the your, into their own narrative instead of barraging them with facts but doing that requires empathy and it requires listening and what happens when the debate is about something is something like your fundamental self or your rights you know when the stakes are personally high for you i mean i'm thinking about you know we've had discussions here on the book club about scientists who think that trans people you know aren't representing their own you know personal selves accurately and you know how you how do you talk about that how do you try to convince someone that your own internal understanding of yourself is worthy and is reasonable and that your personal experience counts as evidence about your personality and yourself you know how do you convince someone of that when the only way to convince people of things is 
to accept their narratives to a certain extent. Well, I don't think you, I don't think it's about accepting their their narrative. Uh, I, I, I would never argue that you have to accept the narrative, but but I think I, I think um, I, I think it's, it's always instructive to kind of understand their narrative. I think because I think the first. The first thing is, uh, it, it, uh, for me, it, it, it's it, again, it's an understanding that our biases are invisible to us most most of the time. Not always. <laughs> there are psychopaths in the world, but most of the time, people, even when their views are abhorrent, are coming from a place where they believe they're right. And you know, and let's just say for the sake of the argument that we are right in this case. Um, they've made a mistake they're not evil <laughs> they're not trying to uh, you know create misery in the world they're, they're, they've made a mistake uh, it's like the, the you know in the, in the in the book i write about the the holocaust you know going on holiday with a bunch of holocaust deniers um which was you know quite uh, quite unnerving and it, and it was interesting to me to see the, the number of people on that trip who had you know we were with david irving who 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 was for a an amount of time a holocaust denier um and it was interesting to see on that trip the amount of people whose um parents had served in the second world war like on the on the last day of that trip there was a there, there was a viewing of the movie downfall you know that very realistic uh, film right. about that you know the last five or seven days in the hitler's bunker and one of the guys there he didn't want to watch it because he found it too upsetting because his dad was there you know so so, so you can see like the, 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 it's hard i mean you know i i, the, I don't want to set up a little <laughs> like a, a a top 10 shot of horrific beliefs but what in that top 10 somewhere around the top 10 is going to be holocaust denial i mean this is pretty abhorrent stuff but then but then you start to see it for, for start but then you know when if you if you step away from that high emotion and that demonization and actually try and understand how these people come to this mad belief it, it helps because it seemed to me, and of course I can't prove this, but it seemed to me uh, just that these these were people who had grown up with their mums and dads, and they loved their mums and dads like we like m many of us do. Uh, but the whole world, but their mums and dads were Nazis, and they'd served in the Nazi Party, and the whole world these days uses Nazis as an for evil monster, and that their their their, their sort of very passionate and quite nerd like obsession with Holocaust denial now is a kind of just a, a way of trying to prove to themselves that their mums and dads were monsters that they were lovely people the people that they experienced them as being so you know obviously that's controversial i'm not defending holocaust denial but what i'm saying is that there's always a the story there's always a there's a, there's a reason why people have come to these beliefs that we might find absolutely abhorrent and i, I and i would always want to encourage that journey of understanding just if if for nothing else it takes away takes away some of that hatred it takes away some of that emotion you know i, I, I you know i i i feel that the, it's a cliche i don't want to sort of slip into banality but, but the more we can understand people um i think the easier it is for us all to kind of we're never going to meet in the middle on a lot of these things but 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 at least to take away some of that hatred and rage which i think is becoming so much of a problem especially since the advent of uh, social media uh, and that takes effort uh, and that takes listening and that takes talking and and and, uh, and um i don't think that can ever be a bad thing and, and of course you know the way that the kind of some of the political conversations are at the moment with identity politics in some of these areas it's very emotional and it's, it's very um, uh, which just feels very tribal to me, a lot of it. And, and, I, and, I, and I can only think that, that on that level, um, it, 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 it's potentially a dangerous thing because when, you, when you're thinking tribally, you're kind of building walls when I feel like you should be knocking them down if it doesn't sound too much like a hippie. Well, but, like, but you know, shouldn't your... Shouldn't things that you consider issues of life and death for yourself, issues of you know whether people respect you as an equal human being, you know, shouldn't that be emotional? Is it silly? Is it you know? It seems on some levels, I I totally agree with what you're saying about you know stepping back and trying to be uh, trying to like notice when emotion is affecting what you say and how you say it and how you think. Because that's like something I've sort of tried to do myself on social media recently. But you know, shouldn't some things make us angry? Yeah, well, I, I think that, that, that 
the, the thing that struck me about this, uh, and I, uh, which, which it kind of alludes to your point, is that um, it, it, the, 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 one of the problems... I mean, it's, uh, so what I'm not doing in the book is I'm not, uh, is I'm not making an argument to say this is how we're going to sort of change the world and make it a better place. I'm not right. offering those yeah, kinds yeah. of answers because what I'm trying to do is trying to understand the truth of the situation. And, uh, and one of the difficulties is, for me, is that the people that change the world are the angry people. The people that change the world are the black and white people. Those are the people that, for good or for ill, they're the ones that... that, that, that often you know give us progress but they're all you know they're obviously that you know that they can take us into dark places too so if we were all uh you know if we, if we took emotionality out of the picture we wouldn't we, put, we, we could argue that we, we, maybe we wouldn't have got the great advances in kind of civil rights that we've had since the 1960s you know maybe you know maybe we wouldn't have got the amazing advances we've had in gender relations since the kind of 1970s you know so 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 it's this weird thing I, i'm not saying it makes uh, I'm not saying it makes sense in the sense that this is how we should all be, because I think, you know, f- for me, emotionality is a, is a warning signal. When I feel emotion, I know that I'm not thinking rationally, but it's the irrational ones. <laughs> it's the ones that are of high emotion that have made the world largely, you know, a much better place over the last few decades. I mean, of course, the converse is also true. It's the very it's the emotional ones that can take it to a worse place, too. So, um that's for me where the tension is so yes you know emotion emotion is what creates great changes in the world for good or for ill but at the same time those people who are thinking very emotionally they're not necessarily thinking rationally like the great heroes of the world weren't necessarily rational people they probably weren't rational people because if they were rational they probably wouldn't have embarked on their great heroic missions in the first place what does that say about rationality um (laughs) it's <laughs> a goal uh, yeah um yeah well i mean it's, it's i mean that's a, that, that that's a, that's a very good question i mean i, I you know it's it's a it's a I, 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 what i want to do with this book is kind of step outside of that whole narrative of is this good or is this bad do you know what i mean is rationality good or is it bad i mean they're, they're interesting questions but they're not uh, and obviously they're they're, they're questions that you know people are going to be sort of re-engaged with uh but but that's not that's not a question that I, I particularly wanted to address in the book because i just feel like it takes you into that place again when you're arguing and i don't want to get into that place where i'm arguing where i'm saying is this right or is wrong i'm just saying this is this this is the state of it so i think you know again most of us have a have a, have a mix of kind of kind of rational r- rationalism but i think I, I think most of us are, 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 are mostly emotional creatures and for some of us those emotions will be very strong and will take us into into kind of extreme places other people will, will be a bit less emotional and a bit less tribal and they won't be so extreme it's the people in the extremes which will change the world <laughs> but i think we need that balance between the world changes and you know i was you know when i was younger i was very emotional and very political very angry about things and maybe i've just got old and boring uh, but, but certainly but but it's definitely the work i did on the book has, has changed me in in those ways in that i don't i don't trust my um emotional beliefs anymore but i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend that for the whole world because i think we might get just get stuck you know people would we'd end up with a very boring uh you know people would be uh, too we, we, uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. That's yeah. It, 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 I mean, that's it, about you know, as good it, of a. It, it's a. It's a fascinating question, and it, yeah. you know, because because as you say, I think irrationality uh, has has a lot to do with 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 kind of civilization building and progress. But at the same time, it doesn't. It, it, you know, the 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 the, the rational. Confusing oh, <laughs> <laughs> myself. <laughs> no, it's okay. I was I was going to say like I think this is almost like as good of a conclusion as any as we can get out of this data, you know? I mean, it's yeah. There's not really happy answers and maybe one of the happy answers that you can get is that I, I don't know, you need a balance. Yeah, exactly. And I think we we're never going to rob ourselves of the of that emotionality. We we're never going to 
I don't think you can think your way out of thinking tribally. I don't think you can think your way out of feeling very passionate about those core beliefs that really get your blood pumping. And that's in in a way a good thing because because that means that you are going to have that kind of very heroic human thing of, of going out there and trying to use those beliefs to change the world, which is inherently heroic. Um, uh, but at the same time, it, it, I, I feel like if we could if if we if we could have a bit more of that balance and it's just a bit more of that understanding that most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time when we think somebody who doesn't agree with us is evil they're not evil they just have a very different view of the world than we do and 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 they're just as convinced that we're evil and that they're evil and actually what we're both doing or what one of us is doing is is making a mistake but actually maybe neither of us i mean one, one of the, one of the ways i try and see the world now is not through sort of moralistic right or wrong because i think moralistic right or wrong is that storytelling brain it's trying to understand the world as it's uh, and systems as a system of trade-offs you know so so, so when, when you look at some of these very thorny issues um uh, what we what we tend to do because of the way you know our minds are because we're human is is we see it as a we instantly put a moralistic uh, uh kind of set of uh, kind of structure around that who's right who's wrong who's good who's evil who are the heroes who are the villains but 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 that's wrong i think i think uh, what, I, what what i want to do is trying to see the world more as a system of trade-offs so to just take a an issue that isn't particularly you know that, that, that you know you, you could apply it to all sorts of very kind of thorny issues but just a very simple one is you know the neoliberalism which is obviously the system the capitalism we've been living under since the 80s late 70s uh, you know or, 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 you know is neoliberalism right or is it wrong is it a monster or is it a a, 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 a hero it depends on who you ask but for me it's a trade-off so there's there's lots of bad things about neoliberalism it's created this you know huge inequality you know we've seen um uh people uh again we're talking about some of the people that swung swung towards trump in the last election those are the people that have suffered under under neoliberalism they've seen their you know the incomes i think uh, uh declined with people with white working class without a college degree and that's um because of neoliberalism that's, that's a bad thing but a good thing about neoliberalism is that it's you know and, and the globalization which is a pro which is one of the neoliberal projects is that it's you know it, it, it's it, it's reduced poverty around the world. It's you know it, you know because we've outsourced a lot of our manufacturing to the, to, to the developing world that, that they've uh, you know we, we we've helped a lot of those people come out of poverty. So it's a trade-off. It's not good or it's or, and it's not bad. It's not something in a story. It's not a monster in a cave. It's a system. It's a trade-off. It has a, has good things about it and it has bad things about it. And when you start seeing the world as not as good right or wrong, good or bad, but as trade-offs, I think you get much closer to the truth. And what you see then is that people on both sides they're in a way both often they're both right they're both they're both right <laughs> uh, but but they're both busy trying to disprove each other's points but actually within that the neoliberalism example it's true that that that, that, that inequality has, has risen massively under neoliberalism but it's also true that millions of people have done really well you know millions of people in some of these countries where we would want uh, 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 people to come out of poverty they, they have and, and they're doing really well and if you if you take it out of that emotional place if you take it out of the place of who's right and who's wrong take it out of that story zone you you get for me much closer to the truth right um this, this has been a really great conversation. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me. I appreciate it. No, thanks for your very interesting questions. All right. That was Maggie Kurth-Baker interviewing Will Storr about his book, The Unpersuadables, as part of Sparks 538's science podcast. Thanks for listening. And thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan. Thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada in the control room. Katie Ferguson was our editor. Thanks to Katie. And thanks to Joe Sykes for help with this episode. The What's the Point music is by Rishikesh Herway. As you know, we do Sparks every month in the What's the Point feed. Subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. And let us know what you think. You can email podcast at 538.com with comments or suggestions. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks for listening.